Hi, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices, plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance, HR works. Is there anyone today that isn't beleaguered by busy work, endless emails, reports, and meetings that soak up time you'd rather be spending on strategic imagination, creativity, or high-value work? I doubt it. To help us find relief, we've asked Lisa Bodell to join us. Lisa is founder and CEO of FutureThink, the company that helps organizations to embrace change and become world-class innovators. Lisa serves as a global council member of the World Economic Forum and has helped thousands of senior leaders ignite innovation at Bloomberg, Pfizer, Lockheed Martin, and many others. She's the author of the best-selling book, Kill the Company, End the Status Quo, Start an Innovation Revolution, which won the 2014 Axiom Best Business Book Award and was voted Best Business Book by USA Book News and Booz and Company. Her new book, Why Simple Wins, will be released in October 2016. Lisa is an advisor on the boards of the Association of Professional Futurists and Novartis Diversity and Inclusion Board in Basel, Switzerland. Among her many academic activities, Lisa has taught innovation and creativity at both American and Fordham universities. Lisa, welcome to HR Works. Thank you for having me, and thanks for the kind introduction. Well, I'd like to begin talking about why simple wins, but I, I do want to get to that kill the company idea. So okay. to begin simplifying, I believe you have some steps that will help companies recognize which activities are time sucks and which create lasting value. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I think part of the issue with simplification is that very few people know what it is. They, they know what they feel like when they simplify, but it's, um, it, it, it's really interesting. People don't really know what the time suck and what's, and what's lasting value. So what we did is we did a lot of research, and um, we looked at how people actually spend their time. Um, and what's interesting is it really comes down to a time value equation. So if you looked at your day and you wrote down all the things that you spend your time on, and then next to all those things that you list, either for a day or a week, by the way, um, which ones add value and which ones don't, you'll probably be surprised how long the list of things that don't add value is. And then what we ask people to do is, what you want to do is maximize your time value equation. So the, the things that take little time and have high value, you should be spending your time doing those kinds of things. The things that take a lot of time and have very little value, you need to ask yourself, why are you doing those things? And why don't you stop them today? What's holding you back? And then the things in between there, uh, you spend a lot of time and they have a lot of value. Well, maybe those are worth it. Or you spend a little time but they have a lot of value. Well, then you should do more of that. So it's kind of looking at that time value equation and forcing yourself to really make decisions around are you really maximizing what matters? Well, that's great. I think I might be in trouble already here (laughs) if I'd write that (laughs) list. So... You've said that simplification uh, also drives culture, and culture in turn, in turn drives employee engagement, customer relations, and overall productivity. So that's a hard formula to resist. Can you help us uh, understand how that works? 
Yeah, I think I think where simplification gets misunderstood is people simply see it as an efficiency effort. And I strongly, strongly believe that simplification is a, a cultural effort. And the reason why is this, you know, culture is the work that you do every day. That's it. I mean, if you think about it, it, of course, we do a lot of things around cultural aesthetics, which can be important, but frankly, I think are way overused. So there are things like colorful walls and breakout rooms and beanbag chairs and organic food, and all those things are incredibly important and add to the atmosphere. But the reason people stay at work is because they're doing meaningful things. And if they're not doing meaningful work every day, you have a bad culture. And I think what happens in most companies is they get so caught up in the the regulations and the compliance and then the processes and the managing management, risk, fear, control, all this stuff, that we create this beast of complexity that we become a slave to. And what happens then is we're actually doing ourselves a disservice. We're creating a very bad culture because the work now we're doing is no longer meaningful. So we need to start to look at simplification as not an efficiency effort, but really a strategic advantage and one that HR, HR must own within a company. I, I really believe this is important because by getting the work right and getting the culture right, you accomplish these things. You you, um, you have better customer relationships that are willing to pay more. We know from surveys that organizations that are simple to deal with, uh, they will pay a 6 to 10% price premium and are 70% more likely to recommend them. And they outperform non-index companies by over 200% in terms of stock price. We also know that employees at those companies are 30% more likely to stay, and they're more effective while they're there because they're doing meaningful work. And of course, they have better relationships, those employees, with each other because they know that each person values their time and it, it's, um, not, it, it's frowned upon if you waste each other's time. It's okay to say no to meetings. It's okay to not do 12 revisions of a PowerPoint because people know that that's not a good use of the time and work that matters is what is focused on is a real benefit. Like all these ideas also are going to help you sell um, this program to management. So we see that uh, we can establish this uh, base of simplification. How do you you go about making that a simplification, a habit, so so that it keeps on going? Well, that's a great question because, you know, it can't be this one trick pony where we we all of a sudden tell everybody to simplify and think that they're just going to do it. The biggest thing, frankly, that holds us back from simplification isn't organizational complexity, it's individual. It's individual behaviors, and a lot of complexity is driven driven by risk, fear, power, and control. So we have to do some real behavioral things, which, of course, all the HR professionals are very good at and understand, to, to empower people and measure simplification is a long-term habit. So first of all, it's, it's getting a, a common definition around simplicity. What does it mean and why are we doing it? It's outlining the behaviors that you expect out of simplicity. And in fact, we suggest to people um, listening here to create a code of conduct. We think that's very important to outline what people will do to respect each other's time and what they no longer will do, meaning it could be writing long emails. It could be requesting um, non-urgent reports. It could be requesting emergency meetings. You know, those behaviors that you also won't do play into that code of conduct. And then finally, it's, it's leaders empowering and even mandating to others that simplicity has to have it, that you expect people to get rid of things and not just value doing more things. Because people will, will um, they will be fearful 
that if they do less or if they get rid of things that they will be penalized or seen as not valuable. So making sure as a leader that you actually don't just walk the walk, but you mandate to people that they get rid of stuff, that's how the habit and the behaviors start to happen. Okay. I'll remind everybody that uh, Lisa's new book, Why Simple Wins, is going to be uh, released this October. So now I want to turn to kill the company. That's a phrase that you've made famous with your book, but it does sound a little (laughs) extreme. So um, exactly what do you mean by kill the company? What should companies uh, do to proceed? Well, you know, I was was a fan of kill the company, one, because of the exercise. And I'll tell you as a little side note, I had to fight very hard with my publishers to get that as the title of my book because they were worried it was too extreme. (laughs) And I I, I said, you know, in an era that we live in now with so much noise, you really have to do something extreme or provocative to break through. And I believe in that as long as there's meaning behind it, not just creating more noise. And Kill the Company does that because it's a different way of looking at strategic planning. And I think it's quite clever. Um, You know, we live in this age of disruption really being unsettling to a lot of regulated industries. You know, this this newcomer can come in and literally overturn an industry overnight. And it's hard for the more complex, bigger organizations to steer that ship in a disruptive direction um, because of scale and size. So we invite these companies um, to actually uh, do something called proactive obsolescence, to put themselves at a business rather than the same old strategic planning. So especially now as people are in the middle of strategic planning, I would invite them to kill their company before they go into a full set of, you know, next year's PowerPoint of what they're going to do. And the exercise goes like this. It, it invites you, first of all, to think about who's your number one enemy. And depending on the function or role you are within the organization, you'll have a different answer. But the idea is who keeps you up at night, who are you jealous of, who's your number one competition, who's your biggest threat. And once you as the leader, if you're doing this individually, or the group, if you're doing it as a team, decide who that person is, then we invite them to wear that hat and actually pretend you are that enemy. And now look back at your company and put it out of business. I want you to attack it. I want you to give people 30 minutes to an hour, depending on how big the group is, to identify all the weaknesses, all the things that aren't working, all the areas that if a competitor knew about, they could, you know, eat your lunch. And you will be amazed at how people can identify the weaknesses quite quickly and actually come up with ideas to eradicate that or even turn it back onto their own competition to their benefit. So that's what Kill the Company does. It it gives people an out-of-company experience in a very productive way so they don't feel, you know, strategic planning is so politically correct. And we have to always talk about all our strengths and all we've done. And that's actually not very beneficial because you're not addressing the real problems. And Kill the Company helps you address your problems but in a productive way. So it sounds like it's sort of fun, but also a very productive <laughs> uh, thing to do. So It is. You have um, uh, helped companies see themselves this way, and you've suggested that you have some killer questions. I, uh, I have to say killer questions is one of my favorite things, actually killer queries, because I think provi- you know, inquiry is a really unused skill. And we spend so much time having people brainstorm ideas, but we don't spend a lot of time brainstorming questions about the problem, which really would help you get better ideas in the first place. So we're trying to teach people about inquiry and how to get more killer questions to come up with more provocative, innovative ideas. So, you know, most of us, when we get into a meeting, we haven't even thought about the question. 
you know, what questions do you really want people to solve? And have you asked them what they think the real question is? So rather than going into a brainstorm and saying, hey, who's got an idea? Or who wants to solve this problem? Why not be more provocative about it? So a question might be, if we had to give away all our products and services for free right now, how else would we make money? Or um, uh, uh, here's, a, here's one that's really interesting in terms of getting at fear and what people think the real problem is. Um, what question would you love to ask your boss, your competition, or your employees, but you're too scared to ask it? Um, and I'll, I'll give you one more as an HR professional. You know, it, it would be interesting to get at the culture question in a new way. So rather than saying, how do you rate our culture or how would you describe our culture, maybe instead you say, um, you've just written a tell-all book about the organization. What secrets does it reveal? So you see those kind of questions get at the same boring question but in a more provocative way. Well, I like those. And then you, um, you have another tactic uh, that you recommend. It's called assumption reversal. What's that all about? Well, that's a real disruptive one. And what I like about it is very few people know the difference between being in a groove and being in a rut. <laughs> and the reason they can't solve really difficult problems is the two things happen. One is they keep asking the same question over and over, and that's why they get the same answers. And, um, and number two, they think of their problems in, in, as too large, and they need to break them into parts. So what assumption reversal does is it's a great technique that allows people to list all the assumptions that they have about a problem. And assumptions are truths, right? They're not feelings or beliefs, they're the truth. So if you're talking about, let's say you wanted to improve your, I don't know, weekly status meeting, what you would do is list all the assumptions you have about the meeting. And you'd be amazed if you have a group of five people, it, once you look at all the assumptions and you push people to list as many as possible, like 20 of them, it's hard. Um, not everyone even has the same assumption about the meetings. And that alone really helps people understand what do we assume has to go into these meetings. And then once you get your assumptions all, all listed and, and verified, then you ask people to reverse them. And what that does is it, it teaches people to be extreme and opposite about how they perceive the way something needs to be. So, for example, if your assumptions are a meeting has to be weekly, um, only certain people are invited to attend, and it has to be in a conference room. The reversal of that isn't the opposite, you know, like meeting, no meeting, conference room, no conference room. It's alternatives. So rather than a conference room, it could be, you know, a changing location. It can be a secret location. It can be uh, location on demand, virtual. And what this does is it stretches people's imagination around all the different possibilities that could happen if those assumptions no longer existed. And we've seen it work wonders from um, HBO redoing their weekly status meetings to be more productive to um, large pharmaceutical R&D organizations having much better drug development processes. So it, it's a really powerful technique that people can use quickly on old problems that they're stuck with. Well, I'm getting ready to use some of these <laughs> the next time I have a meeting like that. So <laughs> Good. to um, help us sum this all up, do you have a single thing that you'd recommend uh, for companies that want to get started, either with simplifying the company or killing the company or both? Yeah, I, my, my advice to leadership is um, it's creating the awareness around it for their employees so they realize that this problem exists. Right? Very, a lot of people are complacent and they're stuck in the status quo. 
So you have to give them the vision of what could happen if they actually killed their company, why that would be better, or what actually the outcomes that could happen if they simplified. And then the second thing is for leaders is I think they need to define um, what their intent is with these efforts. So if you really want to simplify, tell everybody why. Why is that so important beyond the obvious? You know, they'll save money, they'll eliminate some problems. Is it because they'll get to work that matters, they'll be able to be more innovative, we'll create more growth markets? I think being able to, to do this for people will really go a long way in terms of the empowerment versus just that empty mission statement on a wall. People don't want any more, you know, 12-step programs. Well, let me remind everybody that um, you can find out more about Lisa and her organization at futurethink.com. Um, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today and providing these very interesting tips. Hey, thank you. I appreciate being on the show. Listeners, please let me know what HR work should cover next. Bruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works. The opinions expressed on HR Works do not represent legal or any other type of professional advice and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified attorney licensed in your state.